Let's, uh, let's pray. Uh, Lord, thanks for framing our reference uh, to Christ in that opening song and that our hearts long to see him and really the consummation of all things that you head up everything under your son, the son of your love. And Lord, we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness is the norm, where sin is put away, where Christ is seen and known and glorified fully as you've always intended. Pray that our time this morning is helpful in catching a little bit more close or fuller or helpful glimpse of Christ and your goodwill for us in him. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. If you weren't here last week, I did want to mention or recommend that you go online and listen to Bill Bider's message. He was talking about the theme of when spiritual leaders fall, and he did a great job both on the depth and the breadth of the message. It was hugely helpful, certainly. I I appreciate it and think you will too if you happen to miss it. Well, to the message this morning, we'll be in Deuteronomy 6 in a little bit, but by way of introduction first, if you go back to the uh, Genesis 3 passage, uh, our first parents, and I like to say it that way, instead of just Adam and Eve, our first parents, those folks that we came from, we share their humanity, we're from them. When our first parents were in the, the garden, they heard God, they interacted, they had some kind of face-to-face fellowship with God that's inferred in the third chapter. But where there had been this easy fellowship, this ability to interact as God's creatures from his hand, nothing that separated them or kept them back, that had been the norm for some probably brief period of time. That all changed suddenly after sin. And you see this in verses 8 through 10. And listen to the language here. It says, they heard, so Adam and Eve in the garden, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Verse 9, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. I heard you, I heard you call, and I was afraid. Now, this was entirely new. And this fear, this was fear born of the the knowledge that God was holy and Adam and Eve were no longer holy. You know, 1 John says that uh, judgment, the thought of judgment of our sinfulness and God's holiness brings its own kind of fear. And that's exactly what they experienced. There had been no fear before. Now when God called, when they heard his voice call, their response was fear. Skipping forward to around 1400 B.C. or so, when Israel met God at Mount Sinai, there's this very intentional language about God calling. And and the word, uh, the, the Hebrew word used is consistent throughout the Genesis account. It's consistent throughout the Exodus account as well. Moses recounts in Deuteronomy 5, and there's this notion of hearing God call and fear. So this is Moses recounting what had happened about 40 years earlier. This is Deuteronomy 5, starting at verse 23. As soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire, that's at Sinai, You came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. 
This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore. We will die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and still lived? Now here you got something very similar to Genesis 3. God, we heard your voice and our response was fear. Now I don't doubt, they know they're sinful just like we do, and I'm sure confronted with God, hearing from God at Mount Sinai, there no doubt would have been that element of fear related to God's holy and I'm not. But I think in addition to that, there's this fear that is the kind of fear Scripture engenders throughout. We would call it typically the fear of the Lord. It's this reverence for who God is, His awesomeness, His perfection, His glory, His honor. He doesn't like what I'm saying. I don't want... <laughs> I didn't even get to a bad joke yet, and he's already <laughs> unhappy with me. Uh, but you, so you certainly have a, probably both kinds of fear here. So the fear of God, especially in that sense of God's awesome and holy, that's enjoined throughout Scripture. So if you think of God is omnipotent, and guys, if God desires to harm you, you will be harmed because nothing can stop him. And you know, in, in Matthew 10, Jesus told his disciples, don't fear men who can only kill you. Now we hear that and it's like, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> what do you mean only kill you? That sounds rather radical to me. But you know, put it in the bigger context. How many of us die? That's all of us. So Jesus is emphatic in that passage, though, because he says, don't fear men who can only kill you. He says emphatically, fear God, because he can not only kill you, he can throw you in hell forever. He says, fear him emphatically, absolutely. This awesome reverential fear for God because of who he is and what he can do. He's also holy and one of the ways you see this borne out in Scripture is when the very best of us, when the best of humanity stands before God or even before His holy angels, they just fall out. You know, Daniel is probably in the Scriptures, Joseph would be close, but with Daniel, the prophet Daniel in Babylon, there's no inference, there's not even a hint of moral culpability in Daniel. And yet, in Daniel 8, when he's, it's unclear, the passage is a little unclear sometimes, is this is this God present or is this only an angel? It's a little unclear in Daniel 8. <clears throat> Daniel can't, he just falls out. He can't stand up. Now the angel's speaking to him. It's not clear if God's present there or not. He just falls out because he can't stand in the presence of this holy personage. And you get to Revelation, and this doesn't happen just once, but multiple times. Revelation 1.17, John, the apostle who knew Jesus in life, sees Jesus in glory, and he doesn't pat him on the back, and he doesn't say, hi, old buddy. He just falls out. He just falls down because there's this inability to interact in his humanity with God in his glory. That, that creates this reverential awe and fear that we are meant to have. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord, this kind of fear is the beginning of knowledge. 
someone who doesn't fear God doesn't have the, the most basic foundation for knowing how to live life well. And Deuteronomy 5.29, in the passage just before the one we'll be in this morning, Oh, God says, oh, that they had such a heart as this always. And he's talking about this incident at Sinai when they said, we can't take any more of this. He says, oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me. Why? Well, to keep all my commandments. Why? Well, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. So what you find throughout Scripture is this fear of the Lord, this this reverence, this awe-filled relationship with this mighty, holy, all-powerful God, this is an entirely positive thing in Scripture. You can't be wise without it. You can't live life well without this kind of fear. But when Jesus walked on the earth, he was asked a question. And the question was this, what is the greatest commandment? Now, the fear of the Lord is all throughout the Old Testament. But Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he does not say, fear God. He says, love God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the 10th lesson in the Mercy Waiting Lessons in Deuteronomy series this morning. And what we see is that while the fear of God is necessary, it's vital we're not making an either-or choice this morning. We're not saying either fear God or love God. We're saying both. But preeminently, Jesus says, he singles out the passage we're in this morning, and he says, the one thing above all others you should do is to love God. That's the biggest thing. That's the biggest takeaway no matter what else. It's to love God. So our relationship with God should have a healthy fear, reverence for God, but ultimately, it should be governed by the love of God. The second half of the passage will be in Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9, and it breaks basically about in half, verses 1 through 3, and then 4 through 9. In the second half of that passage, we'll look at, uh, it's among the best known, and it's most, the, among the most famous passages in all the Old Testament. And Jews have been praying the prayer from Deuteronomy 6 since Moses. Some people call it the Lord's Prayer of the Old Testament. It's called the Shema. And Shema is a very common word. It means to hear or listen. So where it says they heard God in Genesis or we heard God at Sinai, that's the same word. That's the same Hebrew word. To call, I, I listened, uh, God said, listen to me. Or I say, I heard God. That's the same word. So the Shema is this memorable text for the Jews in which they proclaim, they still do to this day, it's memorized, it's a couple other passages are added to it, and it's what they pray to this very day. So after a review of the Ten Commandments in the first half of Deuteronomy 5, this is where we shift gears here in chapter 6. So Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5 is singularly significant because it was the text Jesus used when he answered the question, What's the great commandment? What's the great commandment? So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to read from the ESV. This is Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9. Remember, this is Moses recounting to the generation that will go into the land of promise about what had happened years earlier. It says, This is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you 
that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. That would be the fruit of obedience would be long life and blessing. Hear, therefore, O Israel, that phrase there in verse 3 is the same phrase in verse 4. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, and that's Shema Yisrael in the Hebrew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, or Yahweh, our God, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord is one. There's a lot of theology in that that we're not going into this morning. You know what you inevitably find in text of Scripture is that you go in saying, what will I teach? And then you say, what must I cut out? Because we don't have time. Uh, uh, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall, verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You you shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They'll be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So you got a great passage. And what you've got in the first half of that passage is the fear of God is engendered. And then in the second half, The fear of God is meant to lead to the love of God. We don't stop with the fear of God. The fear of God is meant to lead us to the love of God. Now, I confess, I don't know when you hear this, if you have in the background of your mind some of the thoughts I do, uh, thoughts that I've heard in the world from people I've known well, and, and I'll give you an example from a movie, but it goes something like this, that God's command to love him is seen as a negative. It's seen as a belittling thing. It's seen as a manipulative thing. So here's, here's, this is, these are lines from a movie. The first speaker says, you believe in God, right? And the response is, which one? The first speaker says, anyone. The response is, they all need too much validation for me. It's all love me most or go to hell. I have a hard time believing I'm less needy than God. In other words, if the command to love God is coming from this needy God who needs to be validated, then that's not much of a God, and that God is more needy than me. But what we find is the command to love God is often seen in the world through this lens. It's seen as a negative from a little needy God. But the call to come to know, love, and serve God is a duty because we're His creation. We certainly owe Him that simply as members of the human race that have come forth from Him. But it's also meant to be more than that. The command to love God is God's mercy calling us to come home. It's a call to dine in God's presence. It's an invitation to break bread with the one who loves us and has demonstrably loved us with love that is immeasurable in the gift of his eternal son. The command to love God is a command and a call and an invitation 
to life. So when God says, love me, even in the the short text in its context there in Deuteronomy 6, it's so that it will go well with you. That your love for me will bless you because you'll be in right relationship with me and I'll be free to bless you. It's an invitation to life. Pause for just a minute. Ask yourself, how do I define life? And by this, I don't mean existence. I don't mean biologic life. I don't mean that I'm alive on the earth. I don't mean that. I mean quality of life. What, what for me represents quality of life? Or for those you know, what defines that life is worth living, that it's a good life, that it's something worth possessing? What would that be? Many of us would define a life that's worth living by pleasure. Certainly in the world, that was certainly true of me. And there's some senses in which that would be true of all of us. And think of it this way. God created us for pleasure, and he created pleasures for us. That's a good thing. But the thing is, if, if life is only qualified as worth living by pleasure, we're asking of pleasure things it cannot deliver unless that pleasure is seen ultimately in knowing God himself. Because worldly pleasures, they, they can be enjoyed. They should be enjoyed. Paul's clear. He says God's created all good things for us to enjoy. But they can only take us so far as far as a reason for living. Uh, peace or joy Life's worth living because I enjoy peace. You know, in the Hebrew, that would be shalom. Life's sort of what it should be. I'm sort of what I should be. There's peace. There's a sense of joy, affirmation. But friends, peace and joys are fruits from the Holy Spirit. They are elements of the character and nature of God. So that ultimately, we may say we can get hints or wafts of the aroma of real peace and joy, but you can't get it in its fullness apart from God apart from being in that loving relationship with God. How about personal significance? I'm personally significant because you think I'm something or someone. And boy, that, that's a big thing, isn't it? Because in our brokenness, we tend to look for affirmation. Somebody tell me I'm okay, because I know I'm not. Personal significance. But friends, there's no possible significance greater than being who and what God created me to be. You can't rise higher than God's plan for you. Now, someone tried that, and it's not going to end well with them. You know, Isaiah and Ezekiel, when they talk about, there's passages that speak initially to kings that look like they go beyond kings to Satan himself, and it describes this thing of reaching for a higher status than God had allotted. We can't get higher than God means for us to be. And in fact... Guys, today, as believers in Jesus, as members of the body of Christ, we rule and reign with Jesus forever. Jesus is our brother. He's our Savior. We're members of his bride. I mean, however you slice it, whatever that looks like, and I don't think we can have a concept for what that looks like in eternity, we can't get higher than God intends to take us. The creature, all and what God means him to be, is as high as we can get. Ultimately, because we were made from God, for God, and we return to God, life has to be defined by our relationship with the God of life because he is the life giver. 
And this is also why hell is called the second death in Revelation 20. In scriptures, death is always separation. It's always separation. So I'm born into the world as a sinner, and I live my life, and I die, and, and die there is separation of body and soul. I die. Well, then John says, yeah, but you know what? The lake of fire, that's the second death. It's death again because it's death forever. And why is it death forever? Because you're not connected to the God of life. You're in a place separated from his benevolent fellowship. And because of that, it's called the second death. You die again because you're not connected vitally to the one who gives life. In Kent's recent series, he talked about this element of truth that to really be connected intimately or vitally with truth, it had to be an apprehension that occurs through Christ because Christ embodies within himself what can be called truth. It's true. Christ is the embodiment of truth. And what you find is that the same thing applies to God and life. The command to love God is a command that leads to life because God is life. To be connected to God is to be connected to life. God contains all that can qualitatively be called life. It's possible to exist but not really live. It's possible to breathe physically but be a spiritual corpse. So those aren't the same thing. Just as humanity will exist apart from God forever, we don't say they live qualitatively, though they exist. God's call to love God is a call to live. God's call is a call to life. The ability to know, love, and enjoy God is the call of God to Israel in Deuteronomy 6, but it remains the call of God to us today as well. We need to understand that the command of Deuteronomy to sit, uh, 6 to hear, O Israel, is still the plea going out today. <clears throat> hear, O wayward son or daughter, the same thing. Love me and you'll find joy in life. You'll find every reason and every purpose for living. But apart from me, you're not going to get it. This command, we would say, is the positive side of the first two of the Ten Commandments. To have no other gods and to refuse idols is to be able to set your love, your affection, your delights on the true and living God. It's to be able to be in a love relationship with Him. Once I understand that God's command to love Him is meant to give me life, joy, and peace, the question then becomes how? How does that get worked out? God says, love me, and I'm like, well, okay, well, what does that look like, and how do I get there? What you see in verse 6 is the answer to that. So after the command to hear and love God in verses 4 and 5, God says this, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So how do we get to know God and in knowing God love Him? God says, by His word on our heart. God reveals himself to us through his word. He draws us into a loving relationship with himself through the revelation he's given us in his word, the scriptures, the Bible. This is where we'd say again, why do we read our Bible? Well, you can't know God apart from reading your Bible. It is the revelation he's given of himself. I, I find this interesting. You know, you can't love someone you don't know. Uh, many of us are trying to love a God that we don't in fact know or don't know very well. We can have a merely sentimental love for God that's sort of born out of our own romantic imagination. 
and it'll be shallow and it'll be deficient because it's not based on reality and on knowledge. We can have shallow love for God born of the testimony of others because somebody else told us something about God. That sounded good. That was appealing to me. We can have a faltering kind of love that's based on forays. Occasionally, I went to church for a while or I read my Bible for a while and I felt myself drawn to God from what I heard or saw or the interaction that occurred. <clears throat> but then I went back and did whatever it was I was doing before. And maybe some of us have been that person or we know that person or those folks. And it's a faltering love because it's not based on a consistent knowledge and interaction with God. A vital, life-giving love of God and for God can only grow and thrive through an intimate knowledge of God personally apprehended in His Word. You know, there's a lot of ways that knowing the Bible can benefit you. Pagans and atheists have often recommended reading the Bible because it was great literature or because it was the foundation of Western civilization and culture. And those things are fine, but that's not why we read the Bible primarily. We read the Bible because we're meeting its author in the pages of that book. This is Deuteronomy 11:18. Uh, Lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Let them be as frontlets between your eyes. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You know, the Jews took this, took this literally, didn't they? And in fact, if you see images of Orthodox Jews today, think especially at the Western Wall in Jerusalem, you'll see Jewish men with the little boxes on their forehead. And you'll see them with leather straps around their arms. And if you go to their homes, you'll see a little box next to the door. And in every one of those, there's a little bit of Scripture because they took this passage literally. But the thought was that you're to live in, you're to breathe in and breathe out God's Word. It's meant to inform everything you do. It, it would be like the fish swimming in the sea. They're in the arena of the water. And the Jews were told, live in my Word. Breathe my Word in, breathe it out. Let your life be vitally connected to me all the time in every way. That was the call. <clears throat> And what you find as you read the Scriptures, I hope you find this for yourself, I've offended another. It's a good Sunday, I think. Um, if we find that our affection, and if we don't even aspire to love, if we simply aspire to have affection for God, and we find that our affections are shallow, it might be because our knowledge of Him is inadequate. And I think often that's the case. And guys, we are bombarded with thoughts and appeals, and there's no, there's no generation in the history of the world that is bombarded with more messages and more appeals than we are today. And so it's easy to have a divided mind and a divided heart, but if we find that affection for God, that love for God for us is difficult or it's shallow or it's off and on, it may simply be because we don't know God well enough. And if that's the case, it's probably a good argument that we need to meet him more often, more frequently, more seriously in the pages of Scripture. Because that's how he said, love would be engendered in us for him because we would take his word to our heart. We would embrace it. Think of a husband and wife embracing. I've taken that person to my heart, to my soul. They become a part of me. That's the thought here. That affection for God's word gives me affection for God. 
affection for the book leads to affection for the alt the author. So it's a good it's good to ask: Are we meeting God in His Word? Are we are we starting our day with God in His Word? Or are we ending our day with God in His Word? Now God not only means to meet us and draw us into life through knowing Him and loving Him in the pages of Scripture but also through meeting Him in the living Word, the Lord Jesus. And friends, we can say any venture into the pages of Scripture that doesn't lead us to God in Christ is a dead end. If we're, if we're taking in Scripture, but we're not meeting Christ, it's a dead end. Listen to this from John 1, 1 through 5. You know, sometimes we were in a Sunday school this morning and... Um, Jonah. And if you've read Jonah, it's just this brilliant, brilliant little piece of not only literature, but God's revelation. And John 1 is like that. It's so finely sewn together. When John the Apostle wrote this, he's connecting two thoughts at least. So he's connecting his introductory verses with the introduction to the Bible, to the Jewish Torah. So his phrase echoes Genesis 1.1. Because he's going to tell us that Jesus is Elohim, is Yahweh of the creation account. But then he's also telling us that this person is also the Word of God made flesh. That in Christ you're seeing, if you think of Sinai, you're seeing Yahweh on the mountaintop and you're hearing him and they're both occurring through the person of Christ. So John 1, 1 through 5 in the begin, in fact, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John says, Jesus is Yahweh Elohim of Genesis 1.1. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. So God's making clear that in Jesus we have both God himself and God's word. And so we can say this, if we apply Deuteronomy 6 today and we say, how is it that I can see love for God grow in myself? And Genesis 6, it was take God's word to your very soul, embrace it like your lover, we would say today... You take Christ himself to your heart. You embrace him to your soul. You take him in. He is your lover, your friend. He's everything he could be. It's the same thing. To read scripture and not find Christ is like walking into a toy store and saying there's no toys. It's like going into a supermarket and saying you can't find the groceries. It's like saying that you love your wife but hate your spouse. It's an impossibility. The Scripture is filled with Christ. And John makes sure we know that Jesus he's representing is God of the Old Testament and the Word of God. And Jesus did this same thing, of course, throughout the Gospels, especially so in the Gospel of John. Remember in Luke 24, 27, when Jesus is going with those two disciples to Emmaus, And he says he's telling them all the things that were written about him in the Old Testament. Now, you remember Jesus showed up on the scenes and most Jews did not believe in him. They were looking for a Messiah that looked a little differently. And 
And uh, I don't think we're better than them, and I don't fault them and say we would have got it right, they got it wrong. They had reason to look for a messianic king. Steve did a, one of the Sunday school lessons on this. It was this great reminder. No, they had legitimate reason to be looking for a conquering king, and Jesus didn't look like that. And they didn't know what that suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53 was. They weren't ready for that. But Jesus came, and so he told them from the Old Testament, he said, this was me. All the, in all these ways, this was me. Or in John 5.39, he says essentially the same thing. He said to Jewish leaders who knew, they knew the Old Testament, guys. They knew their Bible better than we know ours. He says, you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's they that bear witness of me. That when we read our Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, we are meant to meet God in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's always been the case. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If I say I believe in God or know God but reject Jesus, I'm lying to myself because it's an impossibility. And you see this again in 1 John especially. If I reject the Son, I've rejected the Father that sent Him. You know, they are members of the Trinity. To reject one is to reject them all. And that's clear throughout the epistles and the Gospels. We can't know, we can't love God apart from knowing and loving Jesus Christ. So not only do we say, are we meeting God in the pages of Scripture, but we say, are we seeing Christ, Old Testament or New Testament, when we're hanging out with God in the pages of the Bible? Because we're meant to see Christ. You see Him in the Psalms, you see Him in the offerings. Wherever you go, you're meant to see Jesus or His thumbprint, His person or His work. Uh, the title of this message this morning is to love God and pass it on. And pause for just a minute, and there's some places on your study sheet for this, at least to think about now or perhaps later. So if I pause and say, what's the center of my life? And the question, what motivates me? Uh, why do I do what I do? I mean, where I have options, and I might say, well, I go to work to pay the bills. I'm not quite talking about that. But where I have options, where I can exercise myself and make choices, why do I do what I do? Why do I choose what I choose? What is it that excites me? What is it that my affections are set on? What is it that I love to do? What would those who know us well say that was? A relative, a friend, a neighbor, they know me well. What would they say? is my key motivation in life. If I'm a parent, what is it that my children will take away from my household because of what I, we, loved? Their parents. Because what we loved. What will our children take away because they were raised in our household exposed to, to us and to our motivations and to those things that we loved? What do we love so fully that our children can't help but know it? And this is the pass it on part. 
inevitably in Scripture, you'll see that when we enter into the love of God or relationship with God, we're always meant to pass it on. And you see that in spades in the Old Testament and the New with parents to children. It's all through the Old Testament. In fact, even thinking of Malachi, the last uh, book of the Old Testament before Jesus comes, the hearts of fathers are turned back to their children. There's always this thought of passing on faith, faithfulness, love for God in the Old Testament. It's part and parcel. So it's no wonder that we read this in Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7. So... Hear God, fear Him, and obey Him. Love God by embracing His Word to yourself. And then verse 6, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. That thought that the parent was going to live in, breathe in the atmosphere of God's Word, they were bringing their children into that same way of living. You know, as parents, we're meant to be calling our children up to the things we love. And that's the thought here. I love God because I know Him in His Word, and I bring my children into this loving relationship with God through the knowledge of God in His Word. The most important thing parents can do for their children is to do all in their power to pass on the knowledge and the love of God. And you get this in Colossians 3. Ephesians 6, especially, fathers, train up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that that's the call. You know, don't frustrate them. Don't make them angry. Don't be legalists. That's not helpful. In fact, legalism is the opposite of love. If, if my relationship with God is a legalistic variety, that's not love for God. Many people confuse legalism with love they're not the same thing at all but if i love god i'm inviting my children up into that same loving relationship for us as parents for kathy and i that meant we would read our bible with our kids every morning at breakfast so we just read through the bible together i cannot tell you how many parents i've had ask us now many of you don't know our daughters but you know maybe one they're outstanding individuals, and I say that with an unbiased perspective as somebody who just knows them. Be better, better people than I am for sure. Um, but we, we loved the Lord, we loved Scripture, and so we wanted to invite our girls into that same setting. And so we would read Scripture together every morning. It was one of the best things we did. And then around the supper table at night, we would read great literature that highlighted virtue and honor and courage and ethics, those sorts of things. Well, they, they would have had a hard time getting out of our house, not being affected by the loves we had because we were sharing them all the time. And they all know the Lord. They love the Lord. Their husbands love the Lord. You know, uh, I used to think this. Maybe you did too or do. I just think someone asked the question, how do you know that you were successful as a parent, as a Christian parent, with this, this in mind? And the answer was, well, I shared the faith with my children, and they believed. And a gentleman said, well, actually, that's not when you know you succeeded. He said, you know you, you succeeded when you see your children pass on the faith to their children, to the grandchildren. And that is a theme throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. It's this thought that, one generation would praise God to the next. There was always this thought of multiplication of your faith not being this rigid thing that stayed in place, but that was caught by your children and was passed on from them to their children 
and then their children and so on. And that's really the call here. And not this is specifically in Deuteronomy. It's from parents to children. Love God and pass it on to your children. But can anyone know you well and not know that you love the Lord if you do? Do you know what I mean? When you have conversations, Scripture says, out of the abundance of the heart, we speak. If I love the Lord, I should be speaking of that to other people because I'm excited about it. Now, I know a lot of you guys love politics, and so it's easy to get you in a conversation about politics. Now, I won't mention names, but we had a friend, and, and we, we joked before a meeting. We said, how long will it be before politics comes up? It was 30 seconds. I will not name him. Uh, but because we love the thought of politics, right? And there's a lot going on, and so there's a lot to think about, etc. Some of us love hobbies. There's a number of things we could love, right? And it would be easy for us to talk about them, to pass on our affection, our delight, and whatever that thing is. Well, that thing should apply in spades to our knowledge of and love for delight in the Lord. And this is not, and this cannot be legalism again. I want to make that very, very clear. What we delight in, that's what our heart's all about. Well, you don't have to beg me to talk to you about something I love and I delight in. So God's not saying sort of jump through some hoops for me. He's saying that when we love him, we really find life and we find something worth passing on. You find in Christ what seizes your heart, the purpose for living. You can't help but want to pass that on, not only to your children, but to anyone you interact with. Uh, Deuteronomy 4 verse 9 said, make, make them known, the statutes of God, to your children and your children's children. Grandparents, talk about it to your grandkids. Deuteronomy 11 verse 18 <clears throat> and uh, through 21 Teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in your house, when you're walking by the way, when you lie down and when you rise, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land. Love for God, discussion of God around His Word always leads to life. That's what it was always meant to do. Deuteronomy 32, near the end of Deuteronomy, he said, Take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. We're not going into this this morning, but I do need to say it. Love for God always leads to obedience to God. And faith in God, faithfulness, always leads to obedience. And this is why James says, I'll show you my faith by what I do. Well, in Deuteronomy, love for God always engenders obedience. And the fear, the holy, reverent fear of God always engenders obedience. And the obedience is always for the sake or for the good of the person who fears, loves, and obeys God. It's always for their good. I caught a little bit of Steve and Kent's uh, Sunday school lesson in the other room and it was talking about biblical love. And some of us think biblical love is a fuzzy, warm thing that I want nothing to do with. And that is not biblical love. Biblical love is to desire the good of someone else. And, and God's biblical love for us is always for our benefit. 
God says love me because it's for your best interest. It's not only appropriate, but you're blessed when you love me because I'm the source of all life, peace, joy. Anything desirable is to be found in God. So, you know, we can't pass on uh, what we don't know or we don't have. You and I can give uh, lip service to concepts or ideas or even ideals, but that's not the same as I know something, I've embraced it, I love it, and I pass that on because it's what fills my heart. It's important to point out the setting in which Jesus was asked that question and in which the command that he referenced came. Jesus was asked of the greatest commandment by fellow Jews who were in a covenant with God. And the command Jesus referenced in Deuteronomy 6 was given to a people already brought into a covenant relationship with God. This command was not spoken broadly to the world. It was spoken to those in relationship with God in both settings. The question rises and the answer is given in the context of a relationship with God. When you read Colossians 3 or Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives, it's not men love women. It's a husband love the one you're in relationship with. So the command to love is predicated on a relationship that's already established. And I'm I'm going to this end. Some of us, it's hard to pass on love for God because we're not in a relationship with God. We, we can't say Christ is at the center of my life because he isn't, because we don't know him through faith. You know, some of us, we may say, well, I, I, don't, I know I'm in relationship with God through Christ. I've trusted Christ, but I, my, my love's here or there. And we say, well, you know, let's confess our sins. Let's put right the things in life we know to put right. And let's meet consistently with God in his word and in prayer. But for others of us, we may be going along thinking I'm okay, and I'm not. I can't love God because I don't belong to him, because I'm not his child through faith in Christ. If we find it hard to love God, it might be because we aren't his, in fact, because God isn't our Father, because Christ isn't our Savior. And with that, I want to read from 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Listen to this. So if we think the command is to work something up, we got to work something up to love God. We've got it wrong. Listen to this. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the big love... John says, isn't that we love God, it's that God loved us. Now here's the catch. To believe in Jesus is to receive the love of God. And having received God's love, we find we're able to love God and all that God loves. God is not commanding the spiritually dead to love Him. He's calling those who have come to Him, who've garnered life through faith in Jesus, who are in relationship with him, to love him. So if you say, you know, this concept of loving God and delighting in God is foreign to me, then it might be that simply God is not, God is not your father yet because Jesus is not your savior yet. 
And the thing there is I simply receive the grace of God in the person and work of Christ and know that my sins are forgiven and I'm sealed and stamped as God's forever. With that, rise if you would, and let's read from that passage, 1 John 4, verses 7 through 10. Let's read together. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and anyone born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son.